Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in February of 2016. Our talk is hosted by our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and Dr. Charles Hall. Dr. Hall received his bachelor's degree in biology from Colgate University and his master's in zoology from Penn State. After learning more about systems ecology in the field, Mr. Hall went on to earn his PhD in zoology from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Dr. Hall has spent his lifetime studying ecology, the environment, and its intersectionality within the economy. He participated in research at illustrious institutions such as the Brookhaven Institute in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. He has also taught at numerous universities. However, he is best known for his time at the State University of New York of Environmental Science and Forestry. Together, Dr. Hall and the Henry George School discussed why the mainstream economic framework overlooks environmental degradation, how more people can become aware of climate change, and why economic growth usually leads to pollution. We hope you enjoy this talk. And please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Uh, Professor Hall, what I want to talk with you about is not only your, the environmental issues and your energy calculations, but the fact that in your work you've laid out the limitations of economics as currently thought and, and how, it, how it really cripples a correct view of economics. And I'd like to develop that, that first. And you've done a wonderful job in characterizing the development of current economic systems and why they basically blind you to the reality of ecology and the environmental issues that we're, we're facing. Well, to put it in some very basic terms, um, during my lifetime, the population and the economy of the earth has increased some five to eight times. And if you look at this over a longer time period, there's an exponential growth of, of our economy and of our population. And if you plot this on thousands of years, both the global economy and the global population are practically a, a flat line until the Industrial Revolution, and then they increase very, very, very sharply. And the rate of increase of the economy is almost exactly the same during this period as the rate, our rate of increase of energy use. Now, um, let me take a step backwards to what we're trying to do more generally. Uh, I feel, and I have many colleagues and non-colleagues that have independently came to the same, same conclusion, that the problem stems fundamentally from economics being considered a social science. Now, if you think about economics, if you think about what does it mean to the average person, what does it mean to you, what does it mean to me, it, it's my dog, it means um, food on the table, 
It means a roof over our head, perhaps a car in the driveway, books on the shelf behind you. These are things. These are things of the material world. And in order for them to exist, they, things must take place in the material world. And fundamentally, um, we argue, and it's just common sense, that this, what happens fundamentally is humans take energy, either, either their muscles and in the older days or, or draft animals like horses as time went on, and then increasingly coal and then oil and gas, a uh, bit of uh, hydropower, a bit of nuclear. All of these things are applied to the raw materials of the earth to generate the goods and services that we call economic products that we buy in the market. Now, for some peculiar reason, economists have focused only on, or at least contemporary eco economists, what are called neoclassical or sometimes neoliberal economists, have focused almost entirely on the last step in this process, the step where people make decisions to to buy this or that thing in the market. All of economics today is based on this basic assumption. How do people make decisions about how to spend their money? So we asked uh, many years ago, starting back in the 1980s, we asked about why is it that economics is a social science, or only a social science. I'm not saying that the social questions are not important, but why is it that we're not dealing with economics from the perspective of the rest of the knowledge of humanity, which I will lump for the moment as natural sciences? In other words, chemistry, physics, geology, and so forth. Uh, we wrote this out in a paper in uh, 2001 that was published in Bioscience, uh, and it was called The Need to Reintegrate the Natural Sciences with Economics. And in this paper, we looked at conventional economics, and I, I studied a lot of economics in doing this and talked to many uh, economists in depth, and so I feel quite confident about what I say here. So the first reason that we in the natural sciences, uh, most of us who have thought about it, cannot accept the basic tenets of economics is that it breaks the laws of thermodynamics. And we know nothing can break the laws of thermodynamics, or at least nothing we've ever discovered in years and years of looking at it. Uh, Einstein found um, a small, uh, well, it's not small, but a, 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 an example where it's we have to, change the laws a little bit to allow for the conversion of mass to energy and energy to mass is a possibility. So you must have a continual input of energy and materials to this economic system for it to operate. So that's the first way that conventional economics, as portrayed in the textbooks, cannot be true. And it's not just the basic textbooks, it's all the way up. The second basic way that the laws of, of science are broken in the basic models of economics is that the boundaries are incorrect. Um, this is a term that 
engineers often use when your your boundaries of your analysis are incorrect. So if you have only firms in, in households, then you are missing the whole plethora of things, starting with resources in the earth and energy from the sun or from nuclear uh, processes or from fossil fuels that operate the economy. And this cannot be. So, in other words, the model in economics has to be wrong. The third way that I found, or we found, I worked with many colleagues, which some, some of whose names I will give today, is, is that uh, in order for science to progress, um, you have to go about it very carefully using the scientific method. Um, it's very hard to find out things for sure. I think we all know that. And the strongest way I know is that uh, is to use the scientific method, where we generate an hypothesis and have a test and control under ideal situations, and um, we let this process go forward uh, into the future. And the most important thing about science is repeatability. We generate models that we think we explain things, we test the models, we scientists try very hard all of the time to uh, test and even to uh, disprove their hypotheses. That's how science works. And, and we find that we have, uh, that we're wrong a lot. Why such a, a stronghold of neoclassical economics when reality is uh, constantly disproving uh, that model, especially when it comes to energy, waste disposal, and all of the things you're talking about, that there's, a, there's a, almost a, a, an heroic effort to, uh, to prevent change in that, in that model. Um, so uh, how did they get away with it? Damned if I know. It's, um, it's quite astonishing, really, um, there have been very pungent critiques of conventional economics, um, many by economists themselves. Well, the bottom line is that you can't have an economy without resources and energy resources in particular. The original work that I did on this was published in this book, it's called Energy and Resource Quality, and this is I did with Cleveland and Kaufman, and this was published in 1986. So you ask, why don't economists pay any attention to this? How are they getting away with what they do? And, and my answer is, well, you know, we tried to write it up. We published it in Science Magazine, it's, but uh, somehow they're bulletproof, and they're protected by people's belief that if you have done something mathematical, that then somehow it's correct. Uh, I think we can make good models of the economy, for sure. I think some people do. But they they're not based on really simple mathematics, which you then go on and do a very uh, sophisticated extension of them. They're based on highly parameterized models that require you to get a lot of data and a lot of understanding. So we have economists building models without the driving processes of, let's just say, energy for the moment. They're curve-fitting, obvious, 
uh, observations. They curve fit that, and they make equations that'll cover certain segments, but they never can. Yeah, they, well, they can fit their they can fit their curves to the actual data, which works as long as conditions don't change. Let's talk about energy now being the impact variable because we'll we'll run out of time. Let's talk about energy into this system now. So, um, uh, Solo and another guy named Dennison did this. I think even better than Solo. Growth theory, and, and they have growth of the economy is a function of capital and labor. And so what Solo did was he wrote a couple of books in with a lot of data, and he found that the uh, growth of the economy could not be explained simply by the growth of labor and the growth of capital. And they had an, a basic equation that says production, that is production of goods and services, equals a function of capital and labor. And when he would do an analysis of how much the labor had grown and how much the capital had grown, he could explain only roughly half of the growth of the economy. And so he was left with something le left over or the technical term is residual, the solo residual. And he attributed this to, um, he attributed this to uh, human ingenuity, to the spark of human creativity. Yeah, or, or more, maybe more generally tech, technology. And, and that was in 1955, and basically, economists have believed that ever since. I wrote Denison, and I said, look, when we put energy into the equation, we can explain so much more. Right. Labor productivity is, increases with the increase in the use of energy per worker hour. In other words, we're making the, the workers' muscles bigger. They can do more. When they're subsidized by fossil fuel, the most example is uh, most easiest example is a, a, a farmer with a tractor, and and uh, fossil fuel makes does the equivalent of make making him much much more productive. All right, well, that brings us to the question of energy. First of all, I wanted to ask you this: uh, uh, the correlation uh, between energy and output is very clear. Uh, the question I have for you is. Would you say that energy drives technology or technology drives energy? You know, this is the chicken and egg question. In, 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 but the, uh, the, the argument would be, I think, and this is a tough one because it's an interesting one and, and, a, and, a, and a tough one. Primarily, once you have a good source of energy, the technology seems to wrap itself around that energy and you seem to be able to optimize it. Yeah, you could argue at the, at the beginnings, there's a there's a there's a area of indeterminacy until finally they they settle on the energy and then the then the development seems to really rush behind the energy. So if we argue that uh, an energy has lifted this economy, you are now kind of an expert on how much of this we have left and what's going to be the replacement for what is obviously a finite source. An important thing 
to realize about the contemporary state of economics is that the kind of economics that we do now, the neoclassical economics, um, was not always that way. It, it was derived uh, in by something called the Marginal Revolution in 1880 and then became more important uh, more recently. But an important thing uh, about economics is that there are many, many different ways that people have thought, very smart people have thought about economics in the past. I, I'm particularly impressed by a guy named Ricardo. And then along came the classical economists, uh, Adam Smith, most famously, and David Ricardo, and uh, ultimately up to Karl Marx, were all considered classical economists. And they thought labor was how wealth was generated. And then when capital comes along, Capital is useless by itself. Capital is a means of using energy. And so in, by 1950, when the major source of energy to the economy became fossil fuels, fossil meaning old, fossil fuels meaning coal, gas, and oil, when this occurred, then Solo was in fact reflecting on the importance of capital equipment, a steam engine is an example we've been talking about, without really understanding what I think is the most important aspect of that steam engine, it's a means of using energy to do economic functions, to do economic processes. And you could understand why Adam Smith would not understand that, because the laws of thermodynamics were not really well developed and, and broadly understood until 1850 or something like that. They, they didn't have, they didn't understand what energy was. They would talk about phlogiston and, and heat energy uh, running as a fluid from one thing to another without understanding that, that heat is basically molecular motion. Right. All right, so in, on that basis... Traveling into the most important source, carbon fuels at this present time, our civilization has been levered up to this incredible growth rate, basically on that. That's now in question, its, uh, its availability and also using it has negative effects on the, on the planet. So the real question is, how long can we use it and what would be the replacement for it? And you've developed the energy in, energy out concept that kind of explains uh, just where we are and what we might, how we might look at this problem, which is probably the problem of the planet for the next 50 years. I don't disagree. There's certainly one of the most important ones. Uh, and another really important one is this huge population level and, and the continued growth of the population. But that's a said. function of the energy yeah, use. And, and, you know, so that maybe you reduce it to one equation or one uh, relation, which is how much energy is there per capita. And as we increase the capitas, that that, that makes it difficult. And, and as we perhaps reduce the energy into the future, that's the other. If you take a barrel of oil and you invest it in looking for more oil, how much would you get back? And uh, we found that over time, uh, we, we, we went to the library and got all kinds of data uh, on this, and we found that over time that the energy return on energy invested 
tended to decline over time. And what we're looking at is, and we call this energy EROI, energy return on investment, and we mean mostly energy investment, but sometimes economic investment. So in other words, when the price of oil would go up, people would drill a lot more looking for it, but they wouldn't find very much more oil, but they'd spend a lot more energy looking for it, and the efficiency of finding that oil would decline. So that's why people who say drill, drill, drill as a solution to our problems, I mean, the data doesn't support that point of view. There's lots of oil left in the ground. But what there isn't is a lot of oil that can be extracted at a high energy return on investment. So when we go progressively offshore to deeper and deeper water, and when we go and try to squeeze oil out of these uh, low-grade oil shales and the various other things that we're doing now, we can get oil and we can get it with an energy profit so far, but it's less than it used to be. And the interesting thing about EROI is that EROI balances, looks at the net difference between depletion and technology. Now, both of them are active. Certainly, the development of fracking technology has uh, given us, a, given the U.S. oil production a new life, and the energy return on investment of this new oil has been declining, too. So, um, I think right now, everybody's relaxed about oil because the price is cheap, and it's cheap very simply because supply exceeds demand, at least for the time being. Why is demand low? Uh, why is demand not increasing? Because the economies of all of Europe, of the United States to a somewhat lesser degree, Japan certainly, and China, all of them, well, the first group I talked about ha have stopped growing. Their economies have stopped growing. Their GDP growth is zero. Almost all of Europe, that, that's true. In Japan, that's true. And the United States has gone down from growing at 3 to 5% a year to growing at 1 or 2% a year. So demand is down. Supply is more or less constant. We're producing an essentially a steady amount of oil, maybe increasing just a very little bit uh, since 2005. So we haven't really reached peak oil. People talk about an undulating plateau, and we're certainly there. The projections into not very far in the future show um, the high, the best guess, and that's all it is, the best guess, is that oil production in the next 10 years will be declining. And with a growing population and growing expectations, a declining oil supply is likely to cause a lot of uh, economic turmoil, as it did, for example, in the 1980s, early 1980s. Perhaps we can take our remaining high-quality fossil fuel. Remember, there's lots of fossil fuel left in the earth, but most of it. But we mine the high-quality stuff first, and that's going to be a bigger and bigger problem. And so, the question is: Is there enough high-quality fossil fuels to generate enough renewable resources at a time when? when energy availability to the general economy is likely to be declining, can we make that transition? And if we don't, what's it going to be like? And 
uh, I know what happens when, what's going to happen probably is in many areas of the earth, we're going to have a decline in, in wealth. And if we have a large decline in wealth, we're, it's likely to lead to turmoil. And as we, I'm not sure that we're ready for that either physically or psychologically. And I'm, I'm very interested because what people are going to do is they're going to look for scapegoats, whether it's, whether it's government or whether it's some other ethnic group or whatever. But the question, of course, and we'll, we'll, we have to come to a close here. I mean, the return on energy is dropping. Uh, Voltaics uh, don't have a high return on energy. We probably, Especially when you include the backup. You include the backup. And then when you, when you have the environmental uh, problems pressing on us, the combination of the two pretty well uh, corner us uh, uh, as to getting away with an easy solution. Would you confirm that? Or, or, or Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I th you know, with all this that's been going on in Paris, uh, you know, I worry that if we, if we turn our back on fossil fuel, it's going to really impact the poor of the world. And I don't, it's, I'm not saying we shouldn't do it, but I'm saying that that has to be thought through a lot better in, in energy return on investment of all of this stuff has to be understood much better before we can plot a really good path into the future, I think. Uh, Professor Hall, thank you for, for the interview, most informative. Uh, well, you're very welcome, and, and, and thank you for your uh, audience. I'm, um, I'm obviously a, a retired professor, and I'm very happy to profess again. <laughs> and that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.